0: This is the Value Investor Podcast with Tracy Reineck. All things value, all the time. Welcome back, value investors. So recently I promised you all a review of the Value Investing Bible, The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. And I was all set. I ordered it and I was going to take it on um, my vacation, a little mini, mini break, I should say, that I took over the 4th of July weekend. And I was going to be writing on Amtrak. So I thought this is the perfect time. I'll take the intelligent investor. But then I was packing for it and I looked at it because I actually have the book. It's not on uh, like a Kindle or anything. And it's quite enormous. It turns out I had to look it up. It's like about almost 600 pages if you add in all the notes and everything at the back of it. And so it's pretty thick, even in a paperback. But I also, at the same time that I ordered that book, I ordered this other book that's getting a lot of buzz right now called Your Money or Your Life. And then the the subtitles, Nine Steps to Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Achieving Financial Independence, fully revised and updated for 2018. And this book is by Vicki Robin and Joe Dominguez. And then this updated version has a foreword by Mr. Money Mustache, which many of you know, his blog, because he blogs a lot about financial independence and the FIRE movement. So I ordered that book at the same time because um, it's getting a buzz, like I said, again. And I looked at that one, and this one was only 317 pages. But actually, if you add on all the, like this workshop thing in the back, let's see. It's about... 329. So, about half the size that I was going to have to pack in my little carry on to go on the Amtrak. So, I decided to go with your money or your life to take on the train. So, we're going to be delayed a little bit longer with the intelligent investor. Um, But I'm excited to talk about this book today. Because um, I wasn't really trading down to read this book, Your Money or Your Life, because this one is a classic too. Like I said, it's getting a lot of buzz again. It was originally published in 1992 and it was a personal finance bestseller, but I never read it in the first go around. And then some of the concepts in it kind of went out, but now it's been reissued, like I said, in 2018. To capitalize on this now popular FIRE movement, which if if you don't know what the FIRE thing means, it means financial independence, retire early. Now, those of you who follow me on Twitter or StockTwits, um, especially on Twitter, know that I kind of, I'm not like a big fan of the FIRE movement, of, of the RE part of it, I guess I should say. I love the FI, but the RE, the retire early part, really kind of annoys me because... Most people don't really want to retire early. They just want to change jobs. But that's a whole other podcast. But I do like the F.I. So this new edition of the book, uh, like I said, got the fire blogger, Mr. Money Mustache, to talk about it. And um, I found it to be really interesting. So, okay, the point of the book is, and this is from the back. Of it, the back of the book jacket is to take your life back by changing your relationship with money. And it has a nine step program where you do a whole bunch of different uh, lessons in it. And um, some of them are like tracking your spending and figuring out exactly where your money is going and kind of figuring out. where, you know, what is happening with money in your life, basically. It also has some of the, what we now would call Marie Kondo uh, views of like decluttering, decluttering your financial life or just decluttering your life, like selling some of your items on like eBay or wherever, you know, you can sell to make some money off because it kind of frees up your life. So that did remind me of Marie's views about decluttering your home in general and some of the concepts in the book are similar. Like she talks about, you know, do you... did you receive like fulfillment from some item? You know, something you bought. Um, did that like bring you joy in the Marie Kondo kind of um, view? So I thought that all that was pretty interesting. And um, some of the other interesting parts are that it it does ask you to figure out how much money you've made in your life. Like that's like one of the very first lessons. And it is kind of stunning when you actually sit down and start adding up the total, like off of your off of your um, tax filings, basically. And even if you've only been working a few years, it is it is still kind of interesting to realize how much you've made, even if you've only been working for like five years or 10 years, let alone even longer time. And then you do start to ask yourself like, where has it all been going? Because it's usually like a pretty big number. Even if you don't think you're making that much money, it, it does add up over several years. And you, you start asking these questions like, why don't I have more to show for this? And that's part of the exercises of the book. Um, it also goes into... The your money or your life concept is just how valuable your time is and how much time you have on this planet based on like the average life expectancy and. How much of that will go into working for money versus working or doing something that you want to do for your life? So um, they have exercise in there to look at that question and you're to figure out what your hourly wage is. Not like what your income is, but literally how many hours you spend at that um job or whatever it is that's bringing in the income and what you what that translates to by the hour because that's a little striking too i think people all assume that they're making like this big hourly wage but when you actually go in and figure it out it might not be all that great and i know um in my former career when I was a lawyer, we used to do this at the big law firm we worked at because we worked a lot of hours and some of us would actually sit there and calculate out our actual hourly wage based on working weekends or working till 10 every night. And it wasn't all that great as you might imagine. So it is like a wake up call um, to see what exactly your hourly wage is. And then it does have this interesting chart in the book too that tells you how many hours you have remaining based on your average lifespan. So not to be morbid or anything, but here's some examples. So if you're 25, you would have, based on the average life expectancies, 54.8 more years remaining in your life or 480,000 hours. If you're 40, you only have 40.7 years left. That's about, you know, right in the midpoint there or 356,000 hours. At 60 years old, you would have 23.3 years left or 204,000 hours. And at 70, it's just 15.6 years or 136,000 hours. And then you have to realize that a lot of the hours are spent of your life, um, not just working, but it's like sleeping, eating, you know, you're in the shower, you're doing some exercise, like these basic event things that most and humans are doing obviously, and sleeping is a huge chunk. So you have to take those hours, subtract probably at least half of them before you even get to what are, you know, the actual hours you have to spend for your life. And then you're looking at what you make per hour in your job and you're kind of evaluating whether or not this this is the path you want to be on. But um, your money and your life isn't a uh, book about investing because I know many of you are sitting there going like, this all sounds nice, Tracy, but what does this have to do with value investing? But I constantly hear from people after, you know, they listen to some of these podcasts or we talk about stocks and they say, you know, Tracy, I can't buy any stocks. I'm not rich. I don't have the money. I've all these other bills, things, you know, are happening. Um, I don't have even $500 to start. Well, um, the plan in the book and the way it makes you look at your finances could mean that you might actually find out you do have an extra 100 or $200 a month or maybe even more. And it talks about, um, you know, changing that relationship with the money. And then when you do that, sometimes that's when you actually find out you have more money. <laughs> so... It talks a lot about um, finding you know, the financial freedom. So what that means is that you probably are going to be saving money and then what are you going to do with that money that you saved? You want it to create some kind of income for you, an um, in income producing investments. So the final chapter of the book is about how to do that and what areas you should be looking at. So it talks about real estate, Uh, bonds, there's always like CDs, and then of course there's stocks. Now, in the book, it recommends passive investing in ETFs. And that's mainly because they find it to be easy and simple. You can just buy a couple of ETFs and kind of be done as your exposure to stocks. And after all, I've said this in the past, we're all not going to guess right on the individual stocks. Um, you know, we all think we're investing geniuses, especially right now with the stock market hitting all-time highs again. And if some of you have been in like the really hot technology stocks, for instance, or the FANGs, or, um, you know, the ones that are really hot retailers, we think like, oh, of course I picked that big winner and I can do it again. And it's so easy, but not everybody can and not everybody really should. So ETFs, give you a broad exposure to the stock market, and it's a lot easier for most people to use them. Um, So you don't really have to be an investing genius to get the financial freedom that they talk about in the book and to get your independence you can do it by buying just a basket of the stock market and hoping that that grows. So the last few years, I've talked about the difficulty in finding value stocks, like the individual stocks. And so it does make some sense. Why not just buy some value ETFs instead? Now, they've been underperforming growth too, just like the stocks, obviously, because it's a basket of them. But you for the most part are still seeing pretty decent returns, and hopefully because they've been underperforming for three to five years now, give or take a little bit there, um, that we're going to be coming out of that because everything moves in kind of cycles. But um, there's nothing wrong with buying some ETFs. So I'm going to give you some of the ones that I've kind of picked out including just like a general one. And we're going to start off with that. Like, why not just buy the the main benchmark, the S&P 500? I know it sounds really boring, but it is the gold standard of the benchmark in the financial industry. And it's easy to kind of track it and know what it's doing because they do talk about it a lot along with the Dow Jones. And, um, you know, so it's not a bad one to get your feet wet on ETFs. Now, I like to try to keep my expenses low when I'm buying these, and that's the big thing in the ETF industry now is expense ratios. I've always gone with Vanguard because they were always the cheapest. I know there's some other competitors now that have matched Vanguard or have tried to go even lower, almost you know no fees, um, but I still like the Vanguard. So all of these are going to be Vanguard ETFs that I'm going to mention today. So the first one is the S&P 500 ETF, and that ticker is from Vanguard. It's VOO. The expense ratio is just 0.03%, so super low. And um, this one really tells you the power of compounding because since its inception, which was September two, 2010, so it was after the lows and after the Great Recession is when they um, put out the CETF. but since 2010, um, September, it's up on an average return of 14.23% through the end of June of 2019. And a 10000 invested in September 2010 is just a little over $30,000 now. So um, that's not too shabby. And 14% compounding over nine years is really tremendous. You only see that in, in big-time bull markets. Um, so that's not too bad. The one-year return through June 30th, so this is June, uh, oh, well, July 1st of 2018 through June 30th, is uh, 10.4%. So it's really rebounded after that sell-off at the end of 2018 and this big rally to start 2019. So that isn't too bad either. Now you do get a dividend yield if you own just the regular index and it's yielding 1.94% as of June 30th. So that's not too shabby either. It's nice to get that little bit Um, extra dividend push in there and the dividends do compound as you know. So if you are seeking your financial freedom and you want to like get some passive income coming in there, the overall S&P 500 is not one of the bad ones to own. It's actually, you know, one of the bigger market ones to own. Now, maybe you do want a higher dividend yield. So I took a look at one of those and that would be the Vanguard High Dividend Yield ETF. And that's VYM is the ticker. And it's mainly large cap. It's kind of in the value category too because it's got the dividends, but it tracks the FTSE High Dividend Yield Index. Um, So it tries to track that. Expenses are low again, just 0.06%. And this one is yielding because it's the high dividend yield, 3.3% as of June 30th. So that's a pretty nice yield right there. It has 423 stocks in it. And now this is another thing you have to watch with ETFs. Like, what does it hold? Because every one of them is different. I didn't go into the holdings on the S P and p 500, um, but I'm about to right now because this one, it holds slightly different than what the S&P 500 has going on. So like I said, it's 423 stocks. The 10 largest holdings are 26.4% of it. So nearly a quarter are just 10 stocks. And what are those? Well, they're the big names you would expect that pay the big dividends. So AT&T, Verizon, Pfizer, JP Morgan, Exxon, Cisco, Chevron, um, Merck, Procter & Gamble. So that's pretty big percentage there with those big, big caps with the with the dividends. Um, and then looking at the sectors that are the big sectors here, finance, not surprising because they are paying nice dividends again. So financials, 18.6% of the whole portfolio. Then you have consumer goods, healthcare, tech is just 10.4, which isn't Awful, Um, and oil and gas actually eight point eight, but if you compare it to the S and P five hundred, which is the overall you know market benchmark you can see some differences in there. So for instance, while the financials are the biggest in this ETF, in the S&P 500, it is now definitely technology. And tech is 21.2% of that S&P 500 ETF. So that's a big difference, 212 versus 10% in this one. And then financials a lot less in the S&P 500 as well, just 13.1% versus 186 in this one, in the dividend one, and then oil and gas a lot smaller now in the S&P 500. It's just 4.9% versus 8.8% here in this dividend one. And then looking at the top 10 on the S&P 500 now, um, it's all the big mega companies, the largest companies in the world, because uh, that makes sense, right? So it's Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan, Exxon, Visa, and Johnson & Johnson. So it's a big, different, very different list because obviously some of them do not pay dividends, so they're not in this dividend yield ETF. Um, and it's it's definitely FANG. you got almost all the FANG names just missing Netflix in there. And then you have the um, just the other big monstrosity companies. <laughs> so... Got to look at what you own in these ETFs too. What is your goal? What areas do you want to be in? Because they're not all the same. So looking at the dividend yield ETFs uh, returns, so 10-year, um, it was actually created in November 2006. So it has a longer history than their other one. That's just the S&P 500. But the 10-year is 14.16%. And then let me look at the, what did I have for the other one again? Um The other one was 14.23, that's since inception though. So it's not quite 10 years on that one because that was 2010. This is 2009 for the 10 years. So 14.16 and then over since inception, since 2006, which includes the Great Recession in there, it's 7.78%. That's pretty impressive because if you can get 7%, the old saying goes that you double your money every 10 years. So you managed to do that even with that big sell-off and those rocky times in there in, in that great recession. So $10,000 invested in 2009 is now about, I would say, 37000 on Vanguard's um, page they, they have a chart that lists what the 10,000 is, but it doesn't actually give like the final number. It just gives you the chart. And so you kind of have to look at it. It's up there near 40 thousand dollars from 10,000, but not quite there. So I estimated 37,000. So not too shabby with dividends. Um, And again, we've had just tremendous with the large caps over the last 10 years. So investors have been rewarded. But as a value investor now, let's switch over to some value ETFs. My favorite ETF is the one that I do own. I've talked about it in the past. And this is on the small cap side. So Vanguard small cap value is ticker VBR. So V is in Victor, BR. And this one has been very volatile. (laughs) It's big. It has a lot of stocks, 847 stocks. And so since they're small caps, there's going to be some growth in there too, because there's no way they're finding enough value to to mix in there. So you are going to have some growth in there. But the 10 largest holdings here are just 5.6%. So it's, it's much more diverse in terms of names on there. And um, expense ratio, 0.07. So pretty low expenses again. The yield on this, you do get a yield, on, even though it's small caps, as of June, it's 2.2%. So I'm pretty surprised I'm getting that yield, but I'll you'll see why in just a moment, why it's getting such a good yield. Um, because in those sectors that make up the portfolio, the number one sector is the financials. It's those small banks. And it's now 35% of this portfolio. I didn't even realize, even though I own this for years, it used to be high. But this is among the highest I've seen it in a while. So 35% now are the financials. A lot of those small banks will pay a dividend, actually. So that's why you get that yield of 2.2, even though this is a small cap ETF. And then you have industrials, they're about 20.8%. You're getting consumer services and consumer goods after that. Technology is just 6.9% here because it's hard to find small cap um, tech And if it is out there, it gets bought out by the big guys. So hard to find. So it's not very big here. And then utilities, 5.7. So you're really buying a small cap bank fund here when you're buying this one. And it has not been doing as well um, because those small banks are struggling. So as of uh, over the last year... This fund is actually down 1.5 percent since July of last year. Um, it's actually down 1.5. The five years just 6.6. But if you look out further back, the 10-year return, because it did really well off of the Great Recession up 14.09%. So it's made up for the poor performance recently by outstanding performance in those first early years after the great recession. So not too bad if you're a long-term investor, but recent years not so great. So 10,000 invested in this one in 2009 is about I would say 36,000. It still had the same chart thing. And I was like trying to eyeball it. And it hasn't really done much in the last like year here. Like I said, it's still down 1.5% in the last year. So that is the small cap value VBR. There's another small cap value you might want to consider too. It's based on the S&P 600. So this is smaller because it's based on the 600 and it's called the Vanguard S&P Small Cap 600 Value ETF. The ticker is VIOV. So two two Vs there. V is in Victor, I O V is in Victor. The expenses for this one are .2, so a little bit more Expensive, must be a little bit harder to manage this one. It does also have a dividend yield a little lower, 1.77% here, and it only holds 449 stocks, you know, compared to over 800 for the other one. This is a little bit more manageable. The 10 largest stocks in it are 7.7% of the total portfolio. Now, financials are the number one industry here, too, but they're not 35%. They're only 21.5% of the total portfolio. You do have big industrial um, component again at 19.8, but information technology is what it's called here. That's 15%. Then you have some consumer discretionary and real estate. So a little bit different mix. That's why I say P- you have to really go in and look at what's in these ETFs, what sectors are you going to own, What are what's it heavily weighted in, all that kind of stuff, because it makes a big difference in overall performance. So since inception in September 2020, 20- So this is another September 2010, so it hasn't quite gone 10 years yet. It's averaging 12.82%. Over the last five years, it's 6.8%. But over the last year, so this tells you that this mix is very different from some of the other ETFs I've talked about. It's down 7.29% as of June 30th, 2019. So that's a big decline, actually, still. So this is in very different areas than the others because even with the big rebound here in 2019, it still isn't, it still isn't recovered. <laughs> So this is one um could be a little bit of interesting buying opportunity but the value is rearing its head here the underperformance of the value here. So 10,000 invested in this one in September 2010 so not quite 10 years again was about 29,000 when I was eyeballing the chart. It was definitely under 30 still it's like up there though. So it was around 29,000. Um, and one more. I'm going to do one more on the value ETF side. This is just the Vanguard value ETF. It's just the basic value one. Ticker is VTV. So double Vs again. V is in Victor. T is in Tracy. V is in Victor. And this has lower expense ratios again, the 0.04%. It's got a good yield, 2.68% as of June 30th. And this only has 339 stocks, and it's mostly large caps here. It doesn't say it's a large cap one, but that's mostly what's dominating, let's just put it that way. So the 10 largest in this one are about a quarter of the portfolio, 24.1%. And here's some of the names in this one of the value. You're getting Berkshire Hathaway, JP Morgan, Johnson & Johnson, Exxon, Procter & Gamble, Pfizer, United Health Group, Bank of America, Cisco and Verizon. So not surprising in a, in a value fund, we're getting some banks. We got some energy in there because they've been cheap. Um, we're getting healthcare because a lot of those big cap drug guys have cheap valuations. And then we're getting some of the like, you know, telecom guys because they're pretty cheap too. So that's an interesting mix right there. The number one category, again, in this one is financials because the financials are cheap. That's why for value funds, it's definitely going to be super high, if not number one, on all of them. And it's 24.6% here. So again, not 35 like the small caps, but 24.6. Then we are going to get healthcare because it's been beaten down pretty good. It's at 16% of this portfolio. Industrials are still cheap, 11%. Then we're getting consumer goods, 11%. We're getting tech, 8.4, and then we get oil and gas, 7.6, and utilities, 6.7. So yeah, you're getting more energy exposure in these value funds than you would in a normal S&P 500 fund where it's dropped down under 5% now. And you're also getting more exposure to the banks here and a little bit more in healthcare too. So that's something to keep in mind when you're looking at all of these. Do you want that exposure? Um, as a value investor, you should because this is where the value is, um, but you're not getting you know, as much exposure, obviously, if at all, to FANG and you know, Microsoft of the worlds. So that's um, something to keep in mind. Since inception, this... Fund, which was uh, created in January 2004, so this is the oldest one. Its average annual return is 8.1%. So again, that's not too bad considering what's happened in in that 15-year time period <laughs> with that great recession. So it pays to be a long-term holder. Basically, 10 years, pretty solid. 13.77. Percent, But this has a lot of big caps in it and we know that they've been doing well over the last year. This one is actually up 9.94% since um, July of last year. And that's a little bit striking to me. Like when I saw that and then I went back and I looked at, you know, that S&P small cap 600 fund, that's down 7.29%. This one's up 9.94% over the last year. Same time period, both are value funds, value ETFs, but the big caps just well outperforming any of the small caps right here. It's You can really see it in these numbers now. Um, $10,000 invested in 2009 would get you about $35,000 now. Again I was like eyeing it on that chart, so it's not an exact number, but it was in between 30 and 40, almost in the middle there, so I just called it 35. Um, So again, not too shabby. A lot of them are right around the same thing over the 10-year outlook. Now, it's easy to look at these returns and to reject small cap value, to just be like, well, I'm not going into that because it's been awful the last couple of years. And it has. The large caps, like I've been saying, have been dominating. But that's why you should be diversified in your investments. Have some smalls, have some mediums, the mids, have some large, and then you'll have exposure to all of them because they do move in cycles. So eventually the large caps aren't going to be where it's at and it's going to return to small caps because, as I've always said, the best performing area historically is small cap value, but just not right now. <laughs> So, um, in the past, it's worked. Just not right now, but that's why it's value. It's um, definitely holding up to its name, right? Everybody's running away from it. They're afraid of it. They don't want to be in it. And so, those stocks could get cheaper still until the market discovers them and they turn around. So, um, I'm also a big believer in having both growth and value value. In that kind of diversification too, as you know from some of my other podcasts, I've said it's not it's not a bad thing to own Fang or own some of those growth names right now. You can own both and there's nothing wrong with that. Or as um, I mentioned, the S&P 500 fund on here does own a lot of those big growth names up in its top 10% holdings. So you will own them if you own the S&P 500. So there is that option as well. So in conclusion, do I recommend this book, um, Your Money or Your Life? to stock investors, you know, should you be reading this if you're into stocks? And my answer would be yes, because it is a really fun read. I did manage to finish it mostly. I think I had like one or two chapters right at the end there on my Amtrak train ride. And, and it was not one of the long ones. I wasn't going, you know, cross country to Los Angeles or anything on Amtrak. So I was able to read it pretty quickly. It's very interesting. And their advice, um, Vicki Robbins' advice in it is to read it through One time just to get a sense of what the book is about and then to go back to each of the lessons, which are the chapters, and then to actually put it into action. So then to figure out how much money you've made over your lifetime, then to figure out um, she has you budgeting and writing down every single expense for 30 days. Um, And then she talks about what that exposes to you about what your spending habits are like. And then she talks about how to apply it and um, to help you move towards the financial freedom. And I do think um, that it will probably get you psyched to take control of your finances and strive for that financial independence. At least for me, that that means having the freedom to save and to invest, and that means for me buying stocks, which I love to do. So I need to free up money and get my own, you know my own financial independence in order to do the thing I like to do, which is buying stocks. So reminder too, you can buy stocks with just a hundred dollar. Or $200 a month, including ETFs these days. You might need like $500 or $1,000, I'm not sure which it is anymore, to open up like an E-Trade account or a Schwab or some of those. But a lot of them have come down now and require less. And then, of course, there's the apps that allow you to buy stocks even more cheaply. Um, But there's a lot of different ways you can do it now with not as much money up front. So, you can put yourself on this path to investing and make your money work for you. And I do think this book will get you motivated to do that. And so that's why I do recommend it for investors and not just people on the personal finance side, although it does have some of both. Um, But yes, I think it's a great book and you should check it out. And it's your money or your life, by Vicki Robin, and she also has a website. You can go there and get a lot of updates there. It's yourmoneyoryourlife.com is their website, but I do recommend it. So let me recap the ETFs again in case you missed some of those tickers. So just the basic S&P 500 Vanguard ETF is V as in Victor, o Then we had, um, let me see all the names here. Then I had the... High Dividend Yield one, that is the High Dividend Yield ETF, VYM. Then we had the small cap, the one I do own, the Vanguard Small Cap Value ETF, VBR. That is the one with 847 stocks in it. Then we had the S&P Small Cap 600 Value ETF, V is in Victor, IOV as in Victor for that one. And then we had just the big basic Vanguard value ETF, Via Zinvictor, T via Z and Victor for that one. I didn't cover a lot of the other value um, ETFs. I know in the past I've had podcasts on a lot of the differences in the value ETFs. And I should probably do another one of those again, because it's been a couple of years and things change in the ETF world. So I'm going to investigate that for later on this summer. And I'll probably do another one of these about just just the value ETFs by many other companies, not just Vanguard, because there are some interesting ones that are uh, have come out from other people. So I will try to cover that, but this gives you some idea of the basics that are out there. So you want to be sure to subscribe because again, I am going to do the Intelligent Investor. I'm turning to that next. It's kind of daunting. I was looking at it again now that I have finished Your Money or Your Life. Um, But 600 pages awaits me and I'm reading it so you don't have to. Um, But I will be covering that going forward here. And so don't miss a single episode. You can get us on Spotify as a standalone show. We're also on Apple Podcasts and you can get us two for one on SoundCloud. But be sure to get us somewhere and I'll see you again next week with some more stocks.